I mean, I think being thankful for even the most little thing, like clean socks, you know, and <laughs> that's that's one thing. It's like I still have a hard time now throwing stuff away because it's like I may need this. I think it's just mainly the appreciation, you know, for the little things and for your friends and family, like everybody that was there waiting, you know, wanting you to come home. You know, that that's the biggest part. This is Epic Ordinary Lives Podcast. Welcome to episode 42 of Epic Ordinary Lives the podcast that believes in the power of story. Story both as a benefit to the person sharing the tale, because when we sit back and reflect on where we've been and what we've gone through, it's a way of learning from our own lives. And at the same time, when we share our stories, we offer those lessons as gifts for all those who are listening. This week, we pick up where we left off with my friend Colton Carroll, who last week we detailed his journey from being a 19, 20-year-old college student to becoming a Marine, going through basic training. And we pick up right where we left off in his journey being deployed in Iraq. Now, what I particularly love about this conversation is how candid he is on the day-to-day experience of, of being deployed. We see those of us that, that have never done anything like this before, I think it's easy to have ideas of what this looks like just based on movies or what we read about in the news. And what Colton does here is share with us what that journey was like while he was in that deployment. Everything from uh, creating a punching bag using a sleeping mat uh, to listening to Taylor Swift while sleeping outside and looking at the stars to navigating a tooth that was abscessed while he was over there and preventing his ability to sleep for a week All of these challenges and also just what his experience looked like, what it was like to wake up and what his days looked like. We go into all of that. So without further ado, please enjoy part two with my friend Colton Carroll. So now that we have completed some household chores that were needed. Yep. uh, Getting the air conditioner fixed. Yeah. In December. Right. Tennessee in December has gotten wacky. Uh, for many a year now. In fact, I think March is the snowiest month now for Tennessee. I believe it. Like, I remember growing up, I always thought it was, like, December. Mm-hmm. And then I really started seeing it more in February than anything. And uh, I think now, I think in the February and March is, yeah, that's when the most snow and stuff starts coming. That's when the winter wonderland appeared in Murfreesboro. But that is a tale for another day. Yes, absolutely. We return... Where we left off with you being deployed, where were you deployed? Uh, we were deployed in late July of 2008 to uh, Habania, Iraq, um, which is right outside uh, of the big base, uh, Al-Takedim, um, which is essentially just like a military hub. 
and uh, it was right across the interstate and we went over there it was an old uh, helicopter base and I think it was a air like a pilot training facility as well back in the day but uh, went over there I was in on this base for two weeks roughly while we they call it ripping which is like I think it's um it's not to say replace in place it sounds weird but I can't think of the actual name for that acronym or whatever right now but it's a it's like they're they're training us for our area of operation so is that one of the things you mentioned is that you did not have time before you volunteered for this to get trained in your actual um I ended up actually doing that once I voided my contract um I I withdrew from the universe cuz it was right before the semester started yeah um so I canceled all that withdrew you know and uh from there I went straight to my last bit of training which I hadn't done yet which was a uh, combat training and uh it was in <clears throat> North Carolina which was I think approximately a month long finished that in uh February of 2008 and is that shooting it's not shooting it's uh it's mainly um like training you to dig foxholes and okay you know and things like that uh we did shoot uh sim rounds um which are like paintball rounds you know shot out of a m16 or an m4 um it just look but it's like a nine millimeter round with a little plastic tip on it with paint in it which really hurts like you can imagine when you get hit with it but it's uh it helps it be you know a lot more realistic and things like that but that's like what we did there and uh yeah so shortly after that we went training in california and then ended up in iraq and you find yourself in this former um pilot training ground it was like a they they trained pilots there and i think it was an old helicopter base um but that is where our unit ended up being stationed for most of yes for um it was actually probably because we were over there for seven months so uh, I believe that the main unit was there till, I think they were there for five months. And then things started changing, so they moved out of that. And then I think that's as they're trying to turn things over to the Iraqis. And then they went and moved up to a base in the north where we eventually got sent. And uh, they were on the base that was up there. But, but the if for those that have never, don't have any experience with this, what did the digs look like? What did... Give us an idea of, of what this living situation looked like. Well, on, in Habania, it was uh, it was almost like a little town. So you had, um, everybody had, every unit had their own little house or their area. And uh, like for us, for instance, we lived in an old warehouse. It was just a huge warehouse that somebody went through and sectioned off into rooms and offices and stuff like that. But it, it was very crudely done. So it was not sheetrock. It wasn't any kind of don't think of an office like you would think of now, you know, or a room like you would think of now. Just think of bare bones, plywood with like they had, they did have little Mitsubishi air conditioners and stuff in them that worked very well. And uh, but yeah, so they had different rooms for each squad, and we all slept in one room. And there was an armory inside of our warehouse where we would store certain things. And uh, it was a it was a compound for us because being engineers, because we also housed our own uh, motor transport drivers and uh, heavy equipment operators. Along, I think we also had uh, an engineer mechanic and some comm guys with us, along with an electrician. So 
we had different buildings for these different jobs that were still in our unit. So we had one building that was solely for storing building materials and another one was just for like a, a mechanics bay. Um, we eventually, uh, we had some guys that cut hair so and there was an empty room in, on the compound so they made a barber shop. Wow. You know, and then uh, in the back we had our own private gym that we had scrounged stuff together. Or somebody did, we didn't do it. And we just kind of fell in on it. Like dumbbells? Yes, dumbbells. Pull-up bar. A bunch of chains. Chains. Yeah, um... One they eventually took, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story, because um, when I was there for two weeks, uh, they they start taking squads and sending them out. They call them like combat outposts, and uh, I got sent. Uh, mine went. I don't think it had the designation of combat outpost because it was multiple service. So it was a JSS and it was a Zymer. I really don't know what JSS stands for, but um, so we had a couple army guys that dealt with our satellite communications, and then we had a navy detachment that they would patrol the river up north out um, off of uh, Lake Tartar. And so it wasn't just a marine base, but it was super tiny. And uh, I got sent up there for, I think, a month and a half. And there was four engineers, and the rest were infantry guys, and we went on every patrol with them every day. Like, they couldn't leave without us kind of deal. And uh, so I did that for the month and a half, but while I was gone, I'd left my sleeping mat uh, back in Habania, and our staff sergeant at the time was trying to make a punching bag for the for the gym, and it just happened to be that my ISO mat was perfect for the outside of a punching bag, and I don't know what he put in it, but that's what happened to my sleeping mat. Co-opted is a <laughs> yeah, it was a punching bag. It was reacquired and uh, used as something else. So it, it was kind of funny when I came back looking for it, and I was like, oh, here it is. It's got my name on it still, and. Put to good use. Yeah, it was. I was like, all right, well. So after um, we did our stint uh, in Zymer, I, I got replaced by um, two more of the guys from our, my squad, and then I went back to Habania. And that was supposed to be a longer solution. Like, I was supposed to, like, get sent back out again, you know, just keep rotating guys in where they were, you know, we were, where we were operating. And it ended up not becoming that because they they were starting to make a push on Mosul in the north. And so they took our our whole squad for the most, they took seven of us and sent us up there. And we lived out of a truck for seven months. Or not seven months, three months. Out um, of a truck? We lived out of an MRAP. Um, it was a four-by, so it was a four-wheeled MRAP, which is a mine-resistant, ambush-protecting vehicle. It looks like a fully armored semi almost, but wow. just a cab. So you're sleeping like in the chair or the No, chairs? we wouldn't sleep in the vehicles. We would when we first got there we started digging holes and sleeping in them outside and then eventually as we got more accustomed to the area and realized we weren't gonna get mortared, we uh, or potentially weren't gonna get mortared, we we stopped digging the holes and we'd just sleep on the ground right outside the truck. And uh, that we did that for that last three months I was over there. Just sleeping literally like on a mat. Yeah, well, originally when we went out there, because my sleeping mat was repurposed as a punching bag, I didn't have anything to sleep on. And uh, I didn't realize how cold I right got in the winter. Mm. So I ended up taking a piece pieces of cardboard from MREs, the MRE boxes, and duct tape and made a crude hobo sleeping mat. Wow. 
and used that for a while until a dust storm came by one day and kicked up a sleeping mat from another coil of guys that we had out in the middle of the desert and it blew his sleeping mat into our coil and I grabbed that and that became mine. <laughs> you said thank you. Yeah, I was like, alright, well you're not going to come back and get this, so we have not seen your sleeping mat, no. Yeah, no, there, there wasn't definitely a single sleeping mat. That... No, we, we never seen one flying across the desert. Well, the th- question that comes to mind, you know, because we, we see this depicted in movies and television shows, we all have kind of wiring in our brain about war, but mm-hmm. what were you doing? What were your responsibilities on a day-to-day basis? Uh, primarily, we became um, weapon cache, like uh, we were looking for weapon caches, and we were looking for IEDs, but not so much as like some of the people in Afghanistan. Like, in other words, IED, improvised... Explosive device, yes. Okay. Um, we were still trained in the, you know, the discovery of them and stuff like that, and the proper procedures, how to deal with them. But that wasn't something that we ended up dealing with too often. And so more than anything, we were just trying to find things that people were hiding. And you would go, like, and it, I think I remember you telling me you did this at night... Some things we did at night, some things we did, you know, during the day. Um, but, like, for instance, there was, we found that they started hiding all their, like, ammo and some of their weapons in piles of goat crap. And uh, once we found that, every pile of poop we had to sweep with our detectors to check and see, you know, what was going on. And uh, there was a few times, yeah, we did find... Like, at one uh, point when we were up north, I found uh, a bunch of AK magazines that were wrapped up in sacks and stuff in the goat crap. And then, because we found it so quick upon getting to this site, everybody was detained in question that lived at this particular house. And we went on to find one of the other Marines found a uh, an actual machine gun. And by the end of it, there was, I'd say, at least eight or nine different weapons recovered from there. Wow. And I don't know the count of rounds, but it was an amazing amount of rounds. And what is the reception from, I'm, I'm sure it varies, but what are, what did it feel like? Like, what did the people, how did they perceive you? And that can, you can go as broadly with, because I'm sure it varied depending on the... It absolutely varied. There was um, some people that were very receptive. There was others that didn't want anything to do with us because they had seen, um, like, their neighbors and stuff who had cooperated with us, and then some, well, well, I'll just call them the bad guys. Mm -hmm. You know, they come in and maybe kill those families that gave us information. So there was a lot of people that were extremely hesitant, you know, to help. uh, But there were others, you know, that they really, they wanted us there, you know. they, I think they actually thought that we weren't really trying to be an occupying force. It's just kind of happened that way. Mm. And uh, we're just trying to root out who's causing all these problems. And so your job is checking for weapons, explosive devices. You have some kind of a device in your hand usually that's almost like a metal detector? I mean, it's a metal detector on steroids. That's, <laughs> um, it's looking for, I guess it's the Faraday signal from the metals. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one that I used 90% of the time was... It was a basic older one because it was so light. And uh, the new ones actually have what's called ground penetrating radar. And so they can actually look and kind of see some of the stuff. You don't know what's there, but it's something. And uh, But those are really heavy, and you don't really want to use those on for sweeping for a cache. You want to use those more for like a minefield. Okay. And you're with a group, and... Y- 
your sleeping schedule, what does that look like if you are doing extremely varied times with your missions? It, it all varied. Um, like, say, when we were on that JSS, we would, because we had to have at least two engineers, and like I said, there was four. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm sorry, there was three. Yeah, there was three of us at that time. And uh, so there was one of the corporals and then the Lance Corporal, and that was me. They had to go on everyone on all the missions, and so the corporals would swap, you know, swap out who went out, and then I ended up going on every one of them because I was the young guy. Ah, seniority then. Yeah, the seniority to... definitely uh, played a role in that one, but I'm truly appreciative of it because I got to have all those experiences and see the different things. Sure, and if you can take us through, you know, you wake up. What did you have a, a ritual like for? how you were briefed on a mission and, and how like that all would go absolutely it um it, as far as the frequency it always varied normally i knew when i was going on a mission because i was asleep and somebody woke me up and that could be during the day that could be at night you know and it'd be like hey you've got so many minutes to get briefed and so we'd get dressed go to the briefing room grab our stuff and leave shower no no shower available. we had um we had a shower on the jss but it was um very limited you'd have to take what's called navy showers which is turn it on get wet turn it off get soapy turn it on wash it off um so like the water consumption was watched very heavily but typically we wouldn't shower before we went out if we hadn't already had one there wasn't enough time so you wake up you're completely asleep they give you a little bit of time you get dressed and you go into a room and they break down for you yeah they basically tell us the particulars of the mission what we're looking for what we're doing where we're going and um, what to look for, stuff like that. And then we load up, do our checks for on the vehicle to make sure we've got everything, everything's working, and then we roll out. It's um, it's normally pretty quick because uh, the vehicles are also being checked during the day. When they come back, they're checked. We have mechanics down there that that's what they do is they're making sure all our stuff's running correctly. And um, that yeah, so it was a quick turnaround normally. And are you often going with the same group of what? What designation would you give this? Is that your squad or what? What is? Um, we were we were like as far as engineers goes, we were more of a fire team, but there was only three of us. So we had a whole platoon or company of uh, infantry with us, and they would swap out each platoon um, for different days. So like one would go on watch, one would go on patrol, and I'm not sure what the other ones would do. But, you know, and that, that way they could kind of rotate out mm-hmm. to not be constantly running around. Um, and so, yeah, we would just, but we went with, we, we didn't change. Like, we just kept going. Um, I, I don't know how it how it happened once I left and came back to Habanillo. But then, like I said, shortly after that, we went up north and uh, did all that. And then that's when we flew back to, uh, we, we finally flew back to, it was uh, Al-Assad, I think, at that time. And that's where we actually left Iraq from. That was your final spot. Yeah, that's where they finally went and collected all our ammo, um, debriefed us, and you know we were essentially waiting for a plane at that point. But now, but this place was also you can think of it as almost like a small California. So it had almost everything you'd want. It had a recreational swimming pool. It had a full dining facility, um, shops. Uh, they had a recreation centers where you go play video games or you use a phone to call home talk to your parents Internet. burger king like yeah they had burger king kfc like pizza hut and subway stuff like that so it was kind of infuriating when you come out from being gone for so long out you know out in the wire sleeping on the, the ground yeah. 
and you come back, and there's a subway on the tarmac of the <laughs> airfield, and you're just like, okay. And we're in the same, like, radius of space. Right, we're in the same country. Yeah, the know, same and, country. And then uh, I've actually seen a meme before that, that says, uh, it says, like, Iraq or Afghanistan, and it shows, like, some people fighting, and then it has uh, people in line at McDonald's or something. It says experiences may vary. Wow. And that's the kind of thing that people don't know who are yeah. not. Now, when you've told some really cool stories, I, at least in my opinion, they're really cool about the fact that you would go on these missions and then you would come home and like listen to Taylor Swift or watch yeah. TV shows from back home. What did your post-mission so, rituals look like? That, that mainly happened um, once we became expeditious as far as not having a base. You know, that's when we lived in the truck. And uh, you had seven guys living in this uh, MRAP, and uh, so we would go do our thing during the day, depending on whatever it was, looking for caches, you know, just searching stuff or whatever. And uh, then we could come back, and the whole our whole convoy would coil up with guns out, and then that would that's how we set up our perimeter every night. Um, once that would happen, we'd grab something to eat, whatever, and uh, then at night we would normally set a laptop up in the middle of the truck, and we'd have people in the back, two in the front. Inside the truck. Inside the truck, and uh, we would watch. We started watching like Deadwood, like some season, just something to kind of break the monotony of everything and to get your mind off of what you were doing. It ended up becoming very therapeutic. And uh, at some point, somebody had sent me. I guess it was Taylor Swift's new album, and I don't remember the name of the album now. But I sat and listened to that at night. Like I'd put my head. I'd, I could only put one headphone in because I still had to hear if there was something happening. Right. But I just remember sitting there staring at the sky and kind of escaping with Taylor Swift. And that sounds really strange, but uh, it was it, it was very nice. Just and again, that's like the only new thing Stuff. I had. Yeah, like yeah. I had my iPod, but of course we had used and abused everything on it. So to have something new like that was pretty incredible. Because you're not uploading anything. We're not uploading. We're not downloading. You're not, you're, <laughs> we barely have a phone. Yeah, and they, there's a certain time for that that you can use, and when somebody breaks that, you're out of a phone. You can't call home. Wow. Now your emotions throughout all of this are you when you wake up and when they wake you up. A, are you exhausted or how did that work? Like from a physiological oh. standpoint. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, like it kind of bounced back and forth. There's days, of course, where you wake up and you're just so exhausted. You you know, it's hard to get up, and then others, you're just ready to go because you don't know what's going to happen that day, or you don't know what you're going to be able to do, you know, and stuff like that, so it's a kind of a mixed bag, and I mean, every day, it kind of, there for a while, it it got extremely monotonous, and so it was just like you're stuck in a rut, you know, because you're, you're going on, you're going on whatever mission you had for the day, and then you come back, and you're pulling two hours of watch, roving around in this thing, just making sure nobody's trying to come up on us, or anything like that, so even your sleep is disturbed again because you'll go to bed, be woke up, who knows how much longer, you know, later than the middle of the night you're staying and watch. Because it's your turn to... Yeah, you know, and that's just a rotating thing for everybody. And uh, so that got, that made us really weary. I would imagine days would blur together. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, I mean, we spent Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's all out there. And uh, it... It was kind of, I mean, it was tough being away from your families, but it, it wasn't as bad as I was really expecting it to be. I didn't get too homesick at that point, you know, I guess. I was just more ready to be done with it, you know, do the job and go home. What it, I would love to hear your, like, what is your mentality when you, A, wake up, 
B, when you are, you know, like when you're in the middle of it, and then C, when you're coming home that day, and I guess you don't have to immediately go on on watch. Like what, I'd love to hear those three junctions. Um, so in the morning, uh, depending on what happened, because a lot of times my tent, we eventually got tents because um, it got so cold. Um, but my tent mate and I, we'd wake up, and if we had watch, because it worked out a lot of times, we would have watch um, right before sunrise. So at that point, it's like we're not going to go to bed because we're going to have to get right back up. So we would go and sit in our truck once we got the other watch up and start watching like a TV show or listen to music and Sudoku. Sudoku was huge because that was really? something to kind of like keep your mind sharp, you know, and to preoccupy you with something. So we'd sit there and play those, and then we'd start the truck to make sure the batteries didn't die, you know, and then to get some heat going in there for a little bit and turn it off. Um, but that was a typical morning, and uh, we'd sometimes eat, brush our teeth, stuff like that. We didn't shower much at all. Like, we probably got, like, maybe one shower in that three-month period. So I would imagine smell, obviously, Yeah, and whoever tough. says that once you're dirty for so long, you stop smelling it is a liar. Because, I mean, you still smell it. You just kind of ignore it. Like, it it's definitely in. still there. You know you stink. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually ended up getting, it was, uh, they called it a medevac, but it was because I had an abscess tooth. And I wasn't sleep. I didn't sleep, end up sleeping for probably almost a week. Wow. Like, at least fully. You know, I'd get a couple hours here and there, but it, the pain was so bad. Um, I was having real trouble sleeping. So, we finally, I got flown out to Al-Assad. And once I got there, it was it was an eye opener because that's where I saw the subway truck. This is where you like, first entered yeah. Little America, in in Iraq. In Iraq, yeah. And so I see this subway truck, and I'm just like, "You've got to be kidding me," you know. And I'm used to being living out of a truck and not having a way to clean myself, or I don't. I've only got one pair of pants and a pair, you know, my shirt. I didn't have like my uh, regulation hat. I had a beanie or a toboggan depending on you know who wants to call it what and uh, i was also a saw gunner so i had this small machine gun like weapon um it wasn't considered a machine gun but that's it was an automatic rifle so in other words for those that don't know you squeeze the trigger and And it keeps firing yeah um but that's what that was my weapon that i carried and um it was apparently an issue when i got to al-assad because they didn't want people walking around with them, and uh, they also they also wanted me because my pants were ripped, I'm dirty, my hair is really long, and uh, they were wanting me to get a haircut and put on my my actual uniform and stuff because the stuff that we wore was flame retardant. Uh, it was a flame retardant clothing, so that if something went off, it wouldn't melt to our skin or we wouldn't wow. catch on fire or anything like that. Well, on this base, they wanted your traditional camis, like your traditional camouflage uniform, which I didn't have on me because I hadn't been wearing it. So I had to deal with some of that, like some people coming up telling me I'm messed up, and I'm like, look, this I'm I'm not based here. I'm just here right now because of my tooth. Things like I, I just remember one, like right when I got back, and I could actually go eat, you know, in this big cafeteria. I load my plate up with like I know I remember they had big Rubens, and I just had a mountain of food. And I'm sitting there, I've got that rifle in my lap, and I'm just chowing down, like shoving my face, and I just get this feeling that I'm being stared at. And I look up, and it's nothing but officers and senior enlisted on the other side, like the next table across from me, staring at me like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? Like, 
because I'm not supposed to be in this uniform. You know, I'm not supposed to have this weapon. You're disheveled, probably. Yeah, my exhausted hair is super looking. long. I'm really dirty. You know, and they, I'm just like, all right, here it comes. You know, I'm about to get a tongue lashing or something. So I was like, well, I'm still hungry, and if they really want to yell at me, I'll take it. I'm going to keep eating. Yeah. And they never said anything. I think it was just that they realized I was so messed up from the normal regulations for the base that there must be some underlying factor. Yeah. You know, because I don't think nobody in their right mind is going to walk around like I was. And you're deserving of I was just hungry. I wouldn't say left alone. Yeah, I, well, I, I mean, wanted to be left alone, yeah. absolutely. Because um, I just wanted to get this tooth fixed and get back out. And eventually when I got to the dentist, they uh, said, well, there's nothing we can do. Here's two Benadryl or something like that to uh, get the swelling or something to go down. And that ended up actually knocking the pain out. Completely. And you had, like, green in your mouth like what it was like really bad right like it I, the tooth had actually began to abscess so i had oh. a pus pocket po- poking out of my gum and uh, that was what when they saw that i had the pus pocket that's what ended up them like okay you've got to leave you know you've got to go and get it checked out um but yeah they gave me that benadryl or whatever it was and uh i slept really good and then the pain didn't come back so they sent me back out and i linked back up with my guys um, and how did that feel? Like, because obviously that's such a juxtaposition. You've been in the most legit roughing it, and then you go to this like almost Disney World situation. It sounds like, mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear if you took a shower. What that? Felt oh, like. I absolutely did. I took probably two showers a day at least um, while I was there. I think I was there like three days. I mean, and would just stand in the water. You know, I, I got to shower because of that more than they did. But if it wasn't for that, it would have been the same. But it was so incredible. But once I found out I was going back, because originally we didn't know if I was going to be able to go back. Um, So what I made sure I did was any extra space I had in my backpack, I went to the the store and bought like tortillas and cheese Whiz and I bought a water boiler for for ramen noodles. For them. Yeah, and so I, I made sure I brought stuff back, like jars of peanut butter. You know, things that wouldn't go necessarily bad, but we could really use. I think I maybe grabbed a pair, a pack of socks or something like that. So I crammed every little crevice in my backpack full of stuff to take back. And uh, But yeah, so when I got back, I could give all that stuff to them. And it was just very relieving to make it back. Because it's like, these are the people I've been with this whole time. I don't want to be the guy that leaves early doesn't get to finish. And uh, But yeah, I got lucky and I got to go back. And how did that feel when you when you did the return the return of Colton uh, from this weird three day thing? I mean that was incredible. I mean because it's like I said, even they didn't know if I was coming back. Yeah. So, and uh, we actually flew from Alasada to um, can't remember the name of the airbase now, but we flew back into this little and uh, and to call it an airbase is being very um, liberal, I guess. <laughs> It's uh, it was just a burned up airstrip with tents on it, you know. And uh, so I get there and I catch the next convoy going out to where they were. They rolled out at night, blacked out, no headlights, all night vision stuff. And uh, we show up right as the sun's coming up, and the guys are starting to move around. And so I see them; they come out of their tents and see me, and it was a great feeling to uh, just be, you know, be back. Embrace. Yeah. You pulled out. You're like, guys, I've got. Yeah, I've got your tortillas and cheese whiz, and here's your water boiler, and you know stuff like that. It, it was great. 
Well, it sounds like, you know, in a life where we can sometimes, and people even listening, may find themselves like half asleep in their lives, Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily really present, going through a grind or maybe doing things they don't want to. And I'm not saying you wanted, you know, you've even established that this became a grind too, but you had to have been alive. Oh, absolutely. Awake, alive, tuned in. Uh, we uh, we drink a whole lot of Rippet energy drinks. I don't know if you know what those are. Uh, so uh, you can get them at like dollar stores and uh, cheap discount beer places. So super high society then, super high class. Uh, <laughs> yeah, super high like dollar energy drinks. You know. Yeah. Um, but no, they were in just these little bitty cans, like a half a Coke can looking thing. And so we'd had flats of those, and we drink those to stay awake a lot. Um, but other than that, yeah, you kind of had to be alert and. Looking around. Now, I want to ask about the whole adventure of getting out of there and going home. But first, you mentioned that, like, waking up and seeing the sunrise. Are there any unexpected moments of beauty like that that happened that you just, you never would have expected being in this kind of a situation that occurred over your time there? Yeah, I mean, the sunrises over there were absolutely beautiful. I mean, because it's, most of it's flat, you know, and it, I guess there's really not a lot to pollute other than maybe garbage fires that, you know, that they're burning. But uh, the, the thing that really stuck out to me the most as far as beauty goes was really being out in the middle of that desert and actually being able to see the Milky Way because wow. there is no lights. You know, it's it's so dark and it was like one of the, it's probably the second time in my life other than being in California in the desert to see the Milky Way. And it was, I didn't know that you could actually see that with your eyes. Wow, you without like I, any got without yeah, I mean, a telescope did, or no light pollution kind of thing, you know, and actually being able to see that and see how many shooting stars there really are every night that you we just don't see here. Oh wow, really? You know? Yeah, so it's like every night you'd see maybe at least two or three, you know, something like that. And so I was like, that was something else. I was like, wow, you know, I had no idea it was actually like this. This is what happens when you're actually outside with no away from everything. Of everything, yeah. Yeah, that, that that that's probably I think some of the most beautiful things I've seen, like the sunset, the sunrise, sunset, and then like actually the night sky. That was absolutely incredible. Now you find out, or, or I guess, do you know going in how much time you have left? We know that we roughly have seven months, but they don't give you a time frame to come home. They don't tell you when you're coming home. You just know about when you left, and then you can kind of figure it out. But they don't give you a date, and that's mainly because they don't want anybody to know when what the troop movements are. Like they don't want to know. They don't want people to know when the new unit's coming in and when this one's leaving, so that way people can maybe shoot down an airplane with you know with the new unit coming in. As bad as that sounds, but so that's it's kept under wraps pretty securely, and you know until like maybe a week before, and even then you can't tell anybody. But they do come and tell you, like... Eventually, yes. And is it, like, it's a week out? It's Yeah, it's only like a week out, I think, is what it was, or something wow. like that. And then that's when they start taking your rounds and uh, and all that stuff. And you, are, do, are you feeling the rumblings of it just by the nature of, like, you're saying? Like Absolutely, you're like, pure excitement, mm-hmm. but you know you're still not home yet. You're not out of the yeah, woods. Yeah, so you have, like, even... I still didn't relax, I don't think, until I got back to Knoxville because like uh we land we left um left Iraq to Kuwait and uh 
from there we flew to uh, North Carolina. Well, but to give us the the thought. So you're in. You get with your guys. These guys that you've been going through. Yes, we actually um, once our operation was over, we got back to the, our, the rest of our unit, and so that was a, like a homecoming as well, because you know they've been out there as well, just in a different capacity. Reunited with your yeah, guys. Yeah, absolutely, and so it was incredible to see everybody again, and you know hug everybody and see what they've been doing, because you have no idea what they've been doing. They have no idea what we've been doing. They just know like where we around where we went, and uh, so that was incredible. But yeah, we linked up with them and. Then we moved as a mass to the next place. Uh, finally got on that airplane out of Iraq. And uh, that was a great feeling, yeah, actually. What, take us through that. That that one was kind of funny for me because everybody, you know, is just chomping at the bit to leave. So, and you're sitting in a cargo plane, you know, is what we would find out. So it's like the cargo jump net jump seats. Sure. Kind of thing. We're all sitting there. Well, everybody loads up and I don't have a seat. And I'm like, oh, shit. What, you know, what am I going to do? Like, I don't, I'm not waiting for the next plane. Like, I, there's no, there's obviously no more room. And I just, in a second, because they were coming through doing checks, I took my laptop case, like a Pelican laptop case, and shoved it up next to the last seat and sat on that and just acted like I had a seat in the airplane. And you created a I seat. I created a seat that was not there and flew out of Iraq to Kuwait on my Pelican laptop case. And do you think they knew and were I, like... I think they almost had to. And they're just like, they're just let like, him get yeah, out of here. I, I don't think that they're... They had to notice, but, you know, they kind of realized, I think, too, it's like, no, we just need to get them home. And, and so I think it worked out. You're, you're, you hear the engines come on. Are you... Like, you, you hit the air. Like, what what, it, what is that like? It, it was pretty exhilarating um again not relaxed yet you know because we still have to fly to kuwait and then from kuwait we have to fly to germany and uh germany actually i think germany was one of the first places i felt joy because we actually got to go have a beer and i remember i had a polar beer a shot of jaeger a jack and a coke in a can and a rum and coke in a can (laughs) And, like, everybody was just, we, we sat around these little tables in the airport. It was just, like, a private little, it must have been almost just for military or something like that because it was a super small terminal with just, like, this store and some chairs to, like, and tables to sit at. And so we actually got to sit there and kind of relax for a second, you know, and cut back, have a beer for the first time in however many months, you know. What did that, what did that, what was that like, tasting that beer? Oh, it was delicious. Just, like... I mean, it, it, none of it lasted very long. Like, Yeah. <laughs> I've never drank something like that so fast in my life. And uh, by the end of it, when we got back on the plane, it put me in a great spot to sleep the rest of the way home. I bet. And so I slept almost the entire way back. Because you haven't consumed probably a lot of... We had two beers at the uh, Marine Corps birthday while we were there. So and, seven uh, months. Yeah. And you you make it back to Knoxville, and what is that kind of finally when you touch down? Oh, it was, I mean, pure joy and excitement. Like, you know, everybody on the plane's cheering, and we have a motor coach there waiting for us to take us back to the base with a, the Patriot Guard riders waiting outside at the gate. And so we ride back with a biker escort, and uh, we had a police escort as well all the way back, and then actually seeing your loved ones. Because the they're there. Time. Yeah. Your parents. Wow. 
And what was the first thing that you ate? Ha, the first thing I ate when I came back, um, I had some uh, some friends show up, and uh, we first well first we went back to my dad's house, and so I could change out of my stuff and put on civilian clothes again. Again, that feeling is incredible, you know. Once you come back and uh, putting on civilian clothes, and I just remember my friend Logan. He walked into the house and he goes, "Oh my God, your feet stink so bad." And I, this again, this is the only time I've noticed my feet stinking. Like I'd forgotten about it, I guess. And maybe it is true. You know, you can't, you do stop smelling it. But that, that was the. I was like, "Oh, okay. I've really got to start scrubbing, the, you know, the crap <laughs> out of my feet and get into some actual clean socks and out of these yeah. nasty boots." Uh, but we went to uh, Barley's in Knoxville and. I think we had a calzone. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely as great as you can imagine. <laughs> Desserts? I didn't have dessert that I can remember. Okay. But yeah, and, uh, but yeah it was a good time. And then slowly try to transition back to the college life. Which I think that will probably be where we head for a part three, because that's okay. like its own chapter, uh, because you have such a crazy next stage of your life where what you're doing now is is so interesting. <laughs> so before we head to part three, which we will probably record separately, um, I just want to ask, like, you know, you've been through this unbelievable, A, the training alone, most people will never know what that's like. And you've said that you took away these lessons of like, you know, man, people whine too much about meaningless things. When you look at the whole experience of being that 18, 19-year-old kid or whatever you were when you made this decision, getting through the training, getting through sleeping on the earth with the same socks on, all of it, being under that kind of stress, what what do you feel are some things you take away from that? Lessons, not lessons, what has walked with you? I mean, I think being thankful for even the most little thing like clean socks, you know, and that's that's one thing. It's like I still have a hard time now throwing stuff away because it's like I may need this. You know, I'm not there anymore, but I still think about, you know, I might need this part to something that I can't get, you know, and so now I've got a collection of junk that I'll probably never need because I just don't want to throw it away. But um, I think it's just mainly the appreciation, you know, for the little things and for your friends and family, like everybody that was there waiting you know, wanting you to come home, you know, that, that's the biggest part. Yeah. That's love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the last question I will ask is looking back on that guy that played laser tag and got put in jail in uh, capture the flag. What advice would you give that 18, 19 year old kid? I would say really go with your gut. I mean, it worked. You know, you don't know that at the time, of course, but just stay, I know it's cliche as well, stay true to yourself and really just go with what you feel. When you do feel the pull of some action that obviously was controversial and multiple family members were scared about, push the gas pedal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, still, you know, be intuitive, listen, weigh all, all your options, but... If you still can't find a negative, you know, that's really going to get you in trouble or send you down the bad path, you know, then go with your gut. Well, this has been awesome. Is 
anyway, if people want to reach out to you, do you want to, I, you don't have to give any of your social media, but if you would like to, if, if anybody want to find out and reach out to you, if, if this is in some way help them. I mean, I'm, I'm on Facebook. Um, you know, I've, uh, right now I'm right about to get to what I'm doing right now later, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I mean, just reach out and give me a shout. And if you're going through some issues or something, maybe we can work through them. Good deal. Well, thanks so much. Thank you for listening, and we will look forward to part three. Again, I think we have at least four parts available with the epic grand life of Colton Carroll. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with my friend Colton Carroll. I just loved hearing all of that. I loved hearing both the unexpected moments of beauty as well as the great challenges that he went through. Just loved all of that, and I want to thank him again for the candor in that conversation. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and write a review on Apple iTunes. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey. Uh, This is a labor of love and one that I'm truly enjoying taking part in. You can also support this podcast by sharing an an episode that you really loved with a family member or friend. I will be back next Thursday with another segment entitled What I've Learned, which is focused on taking some of the quotes, lessons, and stories from previous guests and really zoning in on a few and talking about how I'm taking them and applying them to my own life. So until then, take care of yourself.